We've historically thought about security and to an extent identity as being primarily about authentication. You know, how do you log in, use two-factor, how do you show you are who you say you are? And in fact, that's not the important aspect of security. It's, it's really all about authorization. Mobile workforces, cloud applications, and digitalization are changing every aspect of the modern enterprise. And with radical transformation come new business risks. Welcome to Hybrid Identity Protection, the premier podcast for cybersecurity pros charged with defending hybrid identity environments. Presented by Semperis, the pioneers of identity-driven cyber resilience for the hybrid enterprise. And now, here's your host, 15-time Microsoft MVP and Active Directory security expert, Sean Doobie. Hi, everyone. Thank you for listening to the HIP Podcast. To close out our series of conference panels from the 2020 HIP Conference, we have a panel that you're going to listen to on future-proofing identity security. And our special guest in this episode is Julie Smith, who is Executive Director of the Identity Defined Security Alliance. To watch any of what you may have missed at this year's conference, head over to hipconf.com, H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com, to watch it on demand. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. We're closing out the formal sessions with a panel discussion on future-proofing identity security. Let me introduce our panelists and our special guest, Julie Smith. Julie is the executive director of the IDSA, the Identity Defined Security Alliance, responsible for executing its mission on behalf of the membership and the identity and security community. Throughout her career, she's held various leadership roles in technology and solution companies, including product management, product and solutions marketing, and business development. Prior to joining the IDSA, Julie spent 12 years in the identity and security industry with leading vendors and solution providers. I've known Julie since the early days of the cloud identity, the cloud security, I'm sorry, the cloud identity summit held up in the uh, the high mountains of Colorado when it was really was uh, very literally cloud because it was at 9,000 feet in uh, Keystone. Siddharth Bai is a product management lead at Google Cloud. His current focus is to provide product leadership for managed security services, which streamline customer deployments and enable enterprises to focus on the best that public clouds have to offer. He's been active in the identity and access management space for over a decade and enjoys working with many Fortune 1000 and emerging companies. He's spoken about identity and access management at major industry conferences, including Directory Experts Conference, where I and Gil certainly have known him for many years, Microsoft TechEd, and Google Cloud Next. And last but not least, Gil Kirkpatrick, my colleague, is the chief architect uh, at Semperis. Gil has been building community uh, commercial products for enterprise IT for a very long time, focusing primarily on identity management and security-related products. He's been named a Microsoft MVP for Active Directory and Enterprise Mobility for each of the last 15 years, and is the author of Active Directory Programming, as well as the founder of the Directory Experts Conference. So, and I've known Gil for um, many years, just about all of those 15 years. So, welcome everybody. It's nice to have you on board. Hey, Sean. Thanks. Thank you, Sean. Nice to meet you all. Excited to be here. So 
to open this up, um, you know, the progress of identity towards the center of security, uh, instead of just, you know, historically, it's been a peripheral topic around security. The progress of it towards a center of security is something that everyone on this panel has seen up close. We have the theme for this is future-proofing identity security. I think future-proofing is a little bit, is overly optimistic. I'd like identity as it's currently deployed to simply catch up to new architectures and protocols that have been developed in the last few years, which is one of the things that the IDSA espouses. To me, the challenge is in migrating or adapting existing legacy security architectures and requirements such as remote access is how do you migrate these architectures to these new models to protect them against equally modern threats? So uh, to maybe to start, Julie, you know, as I said, you and I go way back to the beginnings of the Cloud Identity Summit when it was just a very small conference with a hundred people or so um, up there in the mountains. You've been a close observer to this realization of identity at the center. We've seen it happen as we go through, and certainly, you know, Gil and Sid, we've seen it evolved and then become better known. Now you're focused on educating organizations about it with the, you know, uh, an organization that is literally the Identity Defined Security Alliance. It pretty well states what it's all about, but can you tell the people that are listening, what's, what is the IDSA and what's its mission? What's the purpose of it? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, it, it does kind of go back to the days of Cloud Identity Summit and, and Ping Identity, which is where I started my career in identity. Um, and, you know, at the time, you sort of mentioned identity was very operational in nature, right? It was about giving access to people to, to, applications to do their jobs and, and, and really just focused on employees primarily. Um, but, you know, as, as I sort of became more aware of this space and, and spent more time talking to customers, it became obvious that, you know, identity needed to play a much bigger role uh, in organizations and then enter the Verizon data breach incident report, probably around 2015, 2016, where um, the majority of uh, breaches came back to a compromised credential, effectively an identity. And so I think that is is really was sort of the inflection point where I think the, this role and this idea of, of identity being super important to security came about. Um, so to answer your question more specifically, the Identity Defined Security Alliance is a nonprofit organization and we were officially formed in 2019 as a not-for-profit. We have uh, two dozen or so identity and security uh, solution providers and vendors that are part of the organization, as well as around 10 customer advisory board members who sort of provide guidance for us. And, and what we are here to do is educate really the broader security community about the importance of identity um, and how, you know, provide resources and education uh, on how organizations can start to align those functions better, whether it's organizationally, whether it's through integration of technologies, um, but just looking at uh, identity and security together. And the way we do that uh, and the way we develop our resources is through collaboration amongst that group. Um, and so we come together and uh, develop a number of resources. And if you looked at our website, you'd see 
um, the, the product of that. Um, we've got a pretty healthy blog that represents voices from across uh, that 32, uh, you know, people strong um, organization across the customer advisory board and the vendors. Um, we do, you know, a lot of speaking engagements and webinars. We've got a pretty rich um, backlog of on-demand webinars that people can go take a look at. We've uh, recently um, started focusing on research around this topic of identity security. So how are organizations um, implementing security? What kind of results have they had um, in terms of identity-related breaches? You know, what are they seeing inside their organizations and how are they succeeding uh, in some cases? Um, and then we, we tell that story through the eyes of a couple of customers as well. So um, there's, a, there's a wealth of, re of resources available on our website today for people to go um, and engage with. Um, and the, I would say the primary product of the IDSA is uh, what we call our security outcomes and implementation approaches. And those are vendor agnostic security outcomes that organizations um, should be looking to achieve to become more secure. And then implementation or approaches are how do you do that in a vendor neutral sort of architectural pattern um, using the vendors that you might have deployed uh, today in your organization. So that's where kind of bringing those identity and security technologies together kind of hits the, is the rubber that meets the road, so to speak. So um, that's who we are and what we do. What is the, uh, what's the URL for the IDSA? Yeah, it's uh, IDSalliance.org. Right, and it's not IDS, not IDSA.org. That's somebody else, right? <laughs> Infectious disease society. <laughs> no. <laughs> we'll we'll hope for better than that. Um, yeah. So, Sid, um, given your role and the the identity that you find yourself, the identity work you find yourself around, remote work became in a matter of weeks the predominant work mode for most businesses around the world. And I think most, many organizations have been scrambling to wrap security around the just get it done part for remote access. You know, they're, you just stood up a VPN, throw it out there, get it done, and we'll worry about the security later. <laughs> but how do you, how do we use principles like zero trust to to both the improve the security towards remote access in general uh, and to provide a better end user experience for this, for that, you know, this has to be done. It has to be secure. And can we actually get both of those things done? Security, both security and improve the experience and provide flexibility. Yeah, no, great, great question, Sean. I think both with the theme of today and unfortunately probably the theme of the year for, for all of us uh, because of the pandemic we find ourselves in. I, I think it's actually a very interesting and very relevant theme. Like if I you know think about it more generally before jumping to your question is it sort of feels like in my interactions with customers and I mean, I'm a you know product manager. So first and foremost is trying to understand what type of challenges are our customers and communities at large facing and how can we as folks who are working on identity products come up with interesting ways to at least alleviate the pain if not fully solve them because they tend to be pretty tricky and complex. Mm. But I think one of the things which uh, became pretty clear this year, especially as there were lockdowns and there was a very changed landscape is that a lot of companies needed to quickly provide secure access for a newly remote workforce during the early days of COVID-19. And 
So you had a lot of folks who, and organizations who were fairly well settled in the more traditional ways of opening up access, which is you're at the office and then you have your company assigned laptop and you're on the corporate network and then needing to, you know, be able to get access to a bunch of applications, suddenly finding that you have a remote workforce. And it's become clear that this remote work will be a defining characteristic of the new normal and modernizing security by fully embracing, you know, the zero trust model and its principles. It feels now in the second half of 2020, it's not really an option, it's essentially an imperative. And so how do you go about going to do that? Um, I think you touched upon VPN and yes, that's traditionally been the way that a lot of the external communities have, and companies have embraced finding solutions, but VPNs start getting pretty tricky for a couple of reasons pretty quickly. One is if you want to go ahead and do a proper deployment, you know, in terms of the administration complexity of onboarding all of your employees and other partners that you're working with tends to not be a very quick undertaking. On the other hand, for end users, there's additional hassles you're having to go through, you know, double click and get the VPN client. And maybe that requires a separate type of authentication regime More networking restrictions tends to be more complex, especially if you need to roll it out quickly. And so in that paradigm, I think the zero trust principles that you alluded to, I think are very relevant. I happen to work for Google and at Google, I think we've had a norm where we've been wanting to and using zero trust principles for a number of years, both for our own internal usage. In my own experiences as a Google employee, actually the access patterns for me personally and most of my colleagues did not really change fundamentally when we found ourselves in this work from home or work remotely era because a lot of those principles had been implemented over the years for our own access. And in the industry, we're keen and excited to you know, embrace our Beyond Corp paradigm and work with industry partners as a part of the Beyond Corp Alliance, where we had more companies sort of joining us and collaborating with us in the recent past. And really what it comes down to, Sean, in my mind, is you go ahead and you bake in this principle that you're gonna essentially ground it in the identity. So first having your users authenticate, ideally with phishing-resistant authentication where feasible, where security keys is what we most prefer, but other 2FA formats, that's what you, our customers, are finding yourselves being able to do. And then bringing in a lot of the context into the access control decision. And then what you do is you sort of look at all of these identity and context-related signals you're able to gather, and then use that to specify access policies that work. And one of the interesting things that we're excited about is while Historically, we were you know, doing this for our own use as Google employees. A while ago, this was something which you were excited to offer to customers as a part of context of their access in order to access applications, web apps that are running on, that were running on Google Cloud. We announced Beyond Corp Remote Access, which allows organizations to be able to apply zero trust access principles in order to be able to gate access to applications, line of business, custom applications, they may be running elsewhere on other clouds or you know, just to be very like vendor agnostic, on-premises, what have you, and whichever vendor or like product you end up going with, I think it's important to make sure we are setting ourselves up to embrace this new paradigm where you have identity being sort of more fundamental gating factor along with real time and in context decision-based signals to formulate those access control policy decisions. So you were saying that, you know, one aspect of this future-proofing of this modern identity, modern identity-centric framework is 
that identity comprises not just the traditional user ID and password, but a host of attributes associated with that user and with that session, which you then use to determine the validity of the user and the access control for the session? Yes, essentially, like the, you know, there's obviously is the user who they claim they are, and you know, there's various forms and norms, but at least for like closer to, you know, both what we talk to customers about and what we use internally at Google, we're big fans of security keys. We have Titan security keys. There's a whole FIDO alliance that we work with in the industry, but the first step is go ahead and make sure you're confident that the user is who they claim to be via sufficiently phishing resistant authentication. The next thing that you get to, which makes this all pretty exciting is what additional context are you able to bring in? For instance, if I'm able to author a policy that says, for a company that is my you know, company that I'm working with as a partner, but and for their employees, not my company's full-time employees, they're only allowed to access this specific web application only when they're authenticated in this specific manner. And there are some signals I have about the device that they're accessing from. And so this is where like the space really opens up large in a very interesting way for a lot of our industry partners to participate because there could be a company that offers an MDM solution and has a lot of presence and acceptance in the industry that is able to collate these signals and feed them back to the access control decision. So if I know that this is a device which is believed to be not compromised based on expertise that another company has developed and they're able to feed that signal in and you as an administrator are able to incorporate that into your access control policy for your application, then it becomes a very interesting and a very different world versus one where you had to statically author your own policies using things which only one or two vendors provided. And it really changes things substantially and makes the whole access control decision much more richer for you as an administrator and much more collaborative for us as an industry. That makes sense. Julie, you, didn't you say something about the IDSA doing some kind of remote access? Yeah, so I mean, everything that, that Sid is talking about, what the IDSA has done is sort of take it a level up, right? So Sid's talking about it in the context of the Google Beyond Corp and the alliance that they've formed. And there's very definitely synergies between this context awareness for authentication um, and, and what we've identified within our library of security outcomes. And so what, what we've, and just to give you an example of a couple, Sid hit on, um, authentication based on uh, device characteristics. So is it a compromised device? You know, is it, um, uh, you know, other, other attributes about that particular device that people might be using to access corporate resources? Uh, another one that, that uh, kind of applies here is also user behavior, right? So there's uh, technologies out there, user energy, entity and behavior analytics Right, that's providing uh, richer information about the user um, and their behaviors and accessing. Are they accessing from their uh, home computer or are they accessing uh, from an IP address that's unknown um, and not the normal one that they would access from? So these, all these things sort of start to come together to put context around that user and that access. And so those are just a couple of examples of the outcomes that we've defined. Now, what we've also done is sort of put a, a lens on those outcomes, and that you uh, mentioned remote workforce, that's something we actually just published today, uh, is a, a guide around 
um, certain scenarios, sort of the common scenarios that you're seeing in the remote working environments today, and then how can you take those outcomes and apply them to those scenarios? Uh, for example, identity proofing, right? So there are, amazingly, there are companies that are hiring right now still, uh, but there isn't sort of that physical, someone walks into an office and shows up and hands over, you know, a copy of their driver's license and says, do you see this is me and validating that identity. And so how now do you do that in a remote, uh, in a remote way? Um, or even, you know, on the other side of it is people leaving the organization. And how do you ensure that access is removed um, in a timely manner? Uh, for those folks that have unfortunately left the organization. So uh, on our website, you'll see there's a, a published remote guide that, that puts that lens, identity-centric lens on remote security um, for remote workers and uh, applies those outcomes to those specific scenarios. Very interesting. Um, Gil, now, you know, my colleague of many years, you've worked as a chief architect or CTO for both small and large software companies. And, you know, you have seen the security landscape change around you from the developer space. With this perspective, what do you believe nowadays should be table stakes, minimum security capabilities that should be designed into current and future software solutions? What what sort of security concepts still need to be drummed into the, the development community, which, which should be just security 101 as part of development 101? Actually, before I answer that question, it's a good question. And, and, and drumming it is not the right word. It's beating with a club, I think, is the, is the right phrase for when working with developers. Um, but there, there's something that both Sid and Julie touched on, which I think is really important. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's sort of a conceptual change for a lot of people. We've historically thought about security and to an extent identity as being primarily about authentication. You know, how do you log in? Do you use two factor? How do you show you are who you say you are? And in fact, that's, that's not the important, uh, aspect of security. It's, it's really all about authorization. It's, it's how do you make the decision at the time that uh, an application or an application on behalf of a user is, is performing an operation, how do you make sure that that's okay at that time? And the way you do that is, as Sid was talking about, um, is you look at the attributes of that transaction. So there's the attributes of the user, there's the attributes of the device, there's you know the context of the operation. Uh, all of that goes into the author authorization decision. Authentication is actually not the clue here. Authentication is just a way of making sure that the attributes that you're using are, are trustable. The real clue is about authorization. And, and that, so going back to your question about what, what should developers be thinking about, they should not be thinking about, you know, how do I, th I, I authenticate users? They should be thinking about how do I authorize them? And in particular, because the authorization decision is so complex and changes from environment to environment, something that has to be externalized from the application. So uh, developers should not be thinking about how to implement authentication and authorization. They should be thinking about how to externalize that because it just changes all the time. This sort of goes to the whole future proofing thing. So you really want to take the 
the code in your application that has to do with authorization and 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 put it in a separate service ideally one that's being run by somebody else but uh, if you have to build it yourself that's you know that's reasonable too um, but that piece of your application has to be able to evolve rapidly and separately from the actual core logic of your application so externalizing those things is really really important you know it's interesting i i spent almost a year working with a large telecom provider in trying to help them um, adapt or shim their existing on-premises uh, uh, applications into using uh, some of the, the higher levels of security available with some of these uh, cloud service providers. And we only tackled the authentication aspect of it because the authorization part of it is so much more difficult. It requires a refactoring or a rewriting of the application to externalize the RBAC model or the authorization model that these applications use. It's one thing to, you know, to ensure that whoever is coming to an application has a higher level of assurance than the application itself might have been able to do. But to to handle this this authorization problem that you're talking about, yeah, you have to externalize the authorization. And that's a really tough thing to do when an application is already built. Yep, that's and that's one of the challenges. So that's you know why I think developers need to be thinking about as they're as they're improving or building new applications is let the authorization decision be made by some external service, um, and that's where the policy needs to live, so it can be managed by somebody who's not the person who actually manages the application itself. Mm. All that kind of policy information needs to be externalized as well. And there's a good model for it, actually. There, there's a a uh, standard that I think was it W3C? I forget. Who, no, it wasn't W3C. Um, I forget where the standard was made now. Um, but the XACML standard, which is a has really three interesting components to it, but the 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 most important one is the policy model. Um, is they standardized a, a model for making policy decisions for, for any class of application, really. And it's all very attribute-based. You express rules over attributes about the user, about the resource that they're accessing, the operation that they're trying to perform, and contextual attributes as well. So it could be the device or whatever. And they have a, a very clean, well-defined, standardized uh, model and language for expressing those policies. They also have a deployment model, which is, you know, works in some cases and not so well in other cases. Uh, but I think the, the actual, the conceptual model around the policy language is really, really important. And, and that's another thing that if de developers can think about um, the authorization in their own applications in that way, that lets them ex externalize it and also lets those policies evolve over time. Julie, um, you know, a lot of what we, we talk about sometimes can veer towards maybe the more abstract or we're talking about new new capabilities that, that people are not familiar with. And I'm, I'm a strong believer in frameworks where you can take, take new concepts and then you help when you're projecting the concept into a framework that people are already familiar with. And 
how does what the IDSA is doing for security frameworks, how does that apply to frameworks that other companies are already using, such as you know, the NIST cybersecurity framework, which is pretty well known and a lot of companies are, are, are paying attention to or following today? Yeah, I think it's similar to what I talked about earlier with putting sort of the identity-centric lens on uh, these different types of um, initiatives, zero trust and, and remote workforce. And in the case of NIST, um, and Gil has been a part of our technical working group that's focused on this area, but we've taken um, our outcomes and mapped them to the NIST uh, framework, so cybersecurity 1.1, um, the digital identity guidelines in 800-63 and then zero trust in 800- I just completely yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you know if you again if you know you go and and, and you're perusing through those um, those outcomes you can see how those our outcomes uh, help provide sort of an identity-centric lens on those NIST frameworks that, that might be deployed today. And Gil, I don't know if you've been in the, the thick of that technical working group, if you want to add anything to that as well. Yep. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, NIST, NIST's approach is, is a little bit um, scattershot, I guess, in terms of how they pick different aspects of IT operations and security and all of that and and develop guidelines and recommendations for it. Um, so they've never taken a, a real holistic approach to these things, except for the cybersecurity framework. I mean, that was a fairly broad approach to cybersecurity, I think. Um, so the, they, the NIST recommendations take little silos of security practices and, and try to outline what the best practices are. And what we've done in the IDSA is take an identity-focused approach to all of that and say, okay, well, if you're looking at this from an identity lens, which we think is the right way to, to look at security, then this is how it maps to what NIST has done. Because the stuff that NIST has done is really good. It's just not organized around identity at all. Um, so this gives you an identity-centric way to, to think about it. And, and, and it maps you know, reasonably well, I would say. So let me uh, ask you a question, Sid. Um, you know, it's easy to generalize and wave our hands about the cloud, the cloud. But a favorite saying of mine is that the cloud is just your stuff on someone else's computer. Uh, that's the simplest explanation. But that computer resides somewhere. And that somewhere is important to many national and regional regulations. How does identity play into data residency and regional considerations from, from your viewpoint? Yeah, I think you're uh, touching upon some, some very relevant themes here, Sean, and specifically on that uh, data residency, how it plays out. I mean, by no means, uh, you know, am I, an, am I an expert in what's happening with the world at large, but to make our, keep our conversation a little bit more, you know, focused on what's happening in the world before we bring it back to technology. Uh, one of the folks uh, who I listen to or read upon from time to time is uh, Peter Zaihan, and I don't always find myself agreeing with uh, everything he has to say, but one of the interesting things, he's a commentator on geopolitics and what's happening with countries. One of the themes that stands out in my interpretation of you know his commentary is, in general, you're finding countries are becoming more autonomous. They have more opinions. There's specific regulations and directions that 
they're wanting to work in, which is in their individual best interests. And you know, bringing that back to technology, like if you are a company that is operating in certain geographies or wants to grow your business within certain geographies, then what that means is that type of a thinking, that type of an evolving regulatory framework has specific implications on how you design your identity systems, how you design your architecture, your infrastructure. I think probably one of the things which most people will probably find themselves resonating with to start with is European customers. I think they're the ones who over the last few years we have seen have had to come up with ways where they're coming able to meet more strict needs around regulation, around where and how the data might reside. Um, there are stronger preferences for enterprise data residency, operational transparency, and privacy controls we're seeing, especially in Europe and then growing to and also in other regions. And I think in terms of how can we, as folks who are designing these systems, be that as a public cloud provider or, you know, you're a consulting or just doing that for your own company, there's different types of knobs that are available these days. Um, one of those, for example, starting with, uh, you know, Google Cloud, which is the IM model I'm probably the most familiar with, is we have this notion of an organization policy which sort of applies to all the different projects that you're managing for a company. And then you can have specific things that are you're specifying, which are like guardrails for everything else that follows. So one specific example there is what is a resource location policy. So this is a constraint that says that if somebody in my company is going to be bringing up new infrastructure, it can only come up within the regions that I'm specifying within the bounds of this resource location policy. So this is something you as an administrator could choose to set. There's trade-offs and at another time we can dig in more, but generally this is like the type of a guardrail you could put in place. When you think about, you know, IM policies closer home to the topic we're discussing today, then in general, you are, if you have a good handle on certain constructs, could be groups, could be claims, could be group memberships of which users are, you know, mapping back to certain geographies in certain constructs you can hang policies on, then you can specify access policies, which bring that in. For example, for anybody who is a user who's in my US users group, then I'll have this type of an access policy. So those are some controls you have. When you start thinking about it from, you know, it's residency, but it's also sort of how data is persisted at rest. From a security standpoint, you know, if you are able to have your key management system, be able to specify controls around which regions do specific encryption keys reside in or not, something that, you know, one of Google Cloud's products, Cloud KMS can, and there's probably others in the industry. And you're having this level of assurance, which you can know and, you know, prove out to your auditors or to whoever's reporting you or is that the keys will be stored only in the region where you deploy the resource. And that becomes an interesting advantage, interesting specific technical underpinning you can leverage in designing your overall cloud architecture and systems. And so these are some key themes. Another one is around like networking. Uh, you know, if you're able to specify that only access, even though it's in the cloud, but there is a virtual service perimeter, one of the features which VPC service controls with Google and there's probably other you know, systems like that in the industry are able to do, then that's another specific technological capability you could leverage. I think to sort of round that off with overall identity systems, if you suspect you might be in an environment where you have to you know, go ahead and be able to say in the future that none of my user data, none of my authentication data resides in this specific region, 
and resides in this other region, then are your identity systems set up to be able to do that? You know, closer home to Active Directory or to more traditional systems. One of the things you can do is, can you take your whole like AD domain or all domain controllers from one of the regions and move them out? So if it's not AD, if it's some like open source system, are you able to translate and migrate identities across regions? If the need arises, are some of the themes which you want to think about as an identity and a security practitioner? Yeah, it's interesting. We're, is it, are we seeing as, as is it too much to say that we're seeing the, the, the balkanization of requirements as, as more uh, nation states are developing their individual requirements, which is only complicating things. This is, I mean, it's not to say that it isn't necessarily needed. And, and, and it's, we know that it's how hard it is to get nations to agree on anything. So the idea of having them to agree on a privacy standard is, is another thing, but it seems like it's only getting more difficult. It's not getting any easier. I think it's a good question. And I am by no means an expert in sort of, you know, which laws are like what's happening with which country, but I think as a team finding yourself, um, yes, I, I will say that I think most of us probably be better off just pausing and thinking about if the environments were to more aggressively move in this type of a direction, how are we going to be able to keep our architectures nimble and be able to do right by identities and data residencies and starting to plan for some of those controls is uh, probably a pretty prudent strategy to take in late 2020 heading into 2021. Yeah, that's another, another good reason for externalizing your security, the security aspects of your software. Um, because this has to change so rapidly to reflect the needs of the different environments. Um, so if, you know, if, if your application is subject to the rules of a particular country uh, or a particular group of countries, you don't want to embed that policy in your application. You want to have it outside your application where it can be managed and evolve quickly without affecting the application itself. And you could imagine that you know, if you if you build an application that's specific for a particular country, that the actual authorization data that you rely on and the service itself should probably be running in that country, not where your application necessarily is, but because you want to keep that identity related data localized to the particular country that owns it or controls it, has has provenance over it, then you want those decisions to be made where that data is, not inside your application somehow. And that gives you much, much broader application for, I mean, it gives you much broader use of the application. So it isn't, and, and you don't have to develop different versions. Right, know? exactly. Yeah. The other thing that comes out of this too, is the notion of a federation where you have to, not just in, in the sense of federated authentication, which is what everybody's fairly familiar with now, but, um, even federation of authorization, where you make an authoriz authorization decision based on data from many different sources. So you might be relying on the data from a MAM provider to get authorization data about the device, as well as identity data that's held in the country of residence of, of the user, as well as identity data that might be owned by some commercial organization outside of that somehow pulling that all together and making an authorization decision. Um, so you have to be able to federate that. And there's been work recently in the last five, six years 
about federating policies as well. Um, so that even though you may have different rules and regulations, that there's if you if you build those to a, to a standard, you can combine them in some meaningful way and federate the policy evaluation also. It does get complicated, though. There's no question. <laughs> you are reminding me, um, and I'm just this is a question for everybody or whoever wants to think about it is. You know, from a boots on the ground perspective, from your the end user perspective, uh, the uh, what I can only call the failure of federation, what we had espoused in all of these cloud identity summits and identiverse in commercial applications. <clears throat> An example is you you want to use uh, you want to use some app, and it says log in with your Facebook account. Uh, and as an identity person, I was always, you know, average casing, let's use federation. Why create another user ID and password? And then, then the identity provider or the relying party, the application itself, broad jumps over what uh, Kim Cameron's seven rules of identity saying, only take what you need. And they say, no, we're going to take everything, including your dry cleaner's middle name that you've stored and Facebook, because who knows, we might find that a way to monetize that. Yeah. And so, you know, I've, I've, and certainly yourselves as well, sort of started saying and not doing, no, I'm not going to use Federation for this because there's the accompanying privacy and practices have not come along with it. I watch it, you know, and I watch my friends, I watch my wife, and I watch them, and I say, no, I'm not going to tell you that because... You want way too much data. What are your thoughts on you know what's happened and how do we avoid that happening in the future? You know, there, there, there's been a um, a sort of a segment of the identity and security industry moving in, in the direction of self-sovereign identity, where a user manages their own identity, essentially their own authentication service is really what it comes down to. So they, they manage their own identity claims and they control who gets it and when uh, and under what circumstances. And I, you know, inherently, I kind of like that model. I, it seems like that's a good approach, but it's, it's incomplete because authorization decisions are not just made on your personal identity data. It's made on lots of other data as well. And some of that's not under your control. Some of that's not your data. Um, so I think the federation model still works. The problem is that we're, we're using IDPs or identity providers who, um, you know, the users don't actually trust to do the right thing with their data, and, and rightfully so. You know, they're commercial enterprises. Mostly they use that, that data for marketing purposes and, 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 uh, and selling other services based on that data. Um, and... You know, I, I understand that. I, I, I understand the lack of trust in, in how that data ends up getting used. I mean, even just the idea that a specific uh, organization, say like Facebook, would know every application that I've used in the cloud because I use Facebook to authenticate, that in itself is kind of worrisome. And that's, I mean, that is, that's the, certainly the, the, the business application of it is where we try to enable single sign-on using your business identity provider as much as possible 
But that's okay because the business already knows these are authorized business applications. Yeah, but there's already sort of a social understanding that that your company knows a lot about you and that they can use it to authorize access to the company's resources. That Everybody sort of gets that because that's been the way it's worked for years and years and years. Um, but when you start taking that outside outside the corporate environment, it, it gets um, that that social agreement is very fuzzy. Well, let me to, so for a last topic to sort of wind this up, it, it really wouldn't be a complete discussion of future-proofing identity security if we didn't talk a little bit, and I think you just did, Gil, also, to talk about decentralized identity and work that's being done in decentralized identity. Um, I am broadly familiar with it. I don't profess to have any great understanding of it. Sounds like, you know, Gil, you've done some work and uh, Sid, you made the mistake of nodding your head. So you probably had some involvement in it. I don't know about Julie, but does anybody have any comments about the promise that decentralized identity has? Gil, you've actually sort of opened the topic, which is what made yeah. about it. Um, so I haven't worked deeply in that area. And so, so I, I, I know enough to say this looks really interesting to me. Um, the, the idea that you don't have a central authority managing identity data, um, but rather it's, it's distributed amongst the entities that actually have reasonable rights to it. Um, it's, yeah, it seems, seems legit to me. I really like the model. And uh, I haven't, I'm not aware of any big breakthroughs in, in how that's getting used in the real world in the last few years, but I, uh, I'm, uh, I guess I'd say I'm hopeful. Yeah, and I think like one of the other dimensions, uh, just to sort of introduce and think, have us think about it more broadly is you definitely have like, you know, identity providers and federation, which is one theme we've covered a lot around like user identity and business identities. I think the other spectrum of that is, especially in like cloud environments these days, there's a lot that service accounts are doing and there it's a tricky problem too, because like the service account keys, you know, you get it on somebody's machine and they're supposed to keep it securely encrypted and even if you're going into things like Kubernetes, the secrets are long lived. So how do you go ahead and solve that model well? And one of the interesting shifts and why you probably caught me nodding there, Sean, is I'm also seeing, and we're seeing, I'm sure, in the industry, this very interesting trend towards the usage of mutual TLS for service-to-service -service authentication, which offers a very interesting paradigm shift to how we have historically used service accounts. Obviously, that's you know a long topic, so I leave it to you on whether we dig into that more later today or another day. Maybe we'll, uh... we we use mutual TLS in our products quite often, and uh, you know it has lots of good, useful security characteristics, but it also has some real problems in the real world too. It's 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 non-trivial to manage effectively. Um, that's uh, it's interesting that you brought that up, Sid. And, and the whole Kubernetes container, Docker container security model is is really important. I mean, that's the way all software is getting built today. And how you manage the security of of these services that sort of come up and go away at random, um, you know, without any interaction from an administrator, right? It's not like there's an administrator who sits down and says, I'm going to create this service and have it start running and and give it credentials to run. It's some other system is spinning these things up um, in a relatively 
un, uncontrolled way and, and understanding the security implications of that is difficult. It really is. So I think that's an, an interesting topic. You know, we've talked uh, pretty much the entire time about identities in the form of users, right? right. Whether it's an employee or whether it's a customer or maybe it's a third party um, that, you know, is managing your infrastructure or an outsourcing partner or whatever. But yeah, we've just now touched on the idea of machine identities. Yep. And, you know, the, they're just as vulnerable, if not more so, uh, as those machine identities explode in, in the organization. And I guess I would, I know we're talking about future proofing, but I, I would also maybe throw this question out to you guys, if I can do that, is, you know, what percent of the organizations out there today have a good handle on just managing their human identities, much less as we start to think about, you know, customer identities or, or sorry, uh, machine identities. And, and it seems like in some cases, and, and this is something the IDSA tries to do, is is there's still a hunger for just best practices around the fundamentals um, around identity and access management, even before we start to talk about it, uh, taking it into a security um, type vein where we're talking about zero trust and and securing remote workforce. I think there's you know a lot of work that a lot of companies still need to do to just get the basics down. That, that's my perspective on it. I'd be curious to know if you guys have that same feeling. That's a whole other topic. <laughs> I, did a webinar, I don't know. It was a couple of months ago, maybe on on um, uh, identity security in the healthcare industry, and the um, the Internet of Things and machine identity and device identity problem is enormous in a hospital. Um, a, a typical hospital room might have twenty or thirty discrete devices that are connected to the network. And each of those has to have some sort of an identity beyond just a MAC address, right? And how do you manage the both the access of people to those things or other services to those those things? And how do you manage what those things can actually do is is a is a righteous problem. And, and especially since the, the, a lot of these machines were designed and built 20 or 30 years ago. Right. So yeah. just the fact that they have an ethernet port was like, a, a, a <laughs> and you can plug it into your network was a major accomplishment. And they're very expensive and you can't, they're not general purpose upgradable things like a PC is yeah. uh, and, and, and highly vulnerable and, and, critical and, and way too expensive to replace just because of some software things happening. Well, thank you very much, Julie, Sid, and Gil. Um, I think a really interesting conversation. Um, hopefully uh, spur, some, spur some other conversations with people in the audience and drive some people out to go check out the idsaalliance.org website, get the plug in, and uh, continue on. Thanks for joining us on the Hybrid Identity Protection Podcast with Sean Duby. Be sure to subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Visit hipconf.com, that's H-I-P-C-O-N-F.com to learn about upcoming events, view expert presentations, and take part in the conversation.